Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, whether for fun or profit. Countdown, one, two, three. Welcome to another GeoMob Podcast. Today, it's a real great pleasure to talk to an old friend, um, Anthony Scott, and I have known each other for at least a decade now. It seems a long time. Uh, we first met when we were working together on Phosphor G, and then Anthony joined joined me. Well, I say he joined me. He joined Aston, where I was already working. I was there first, so he did sort of join me. Anyway, so then Anthony and I were colleagues for a number of years, and coincidentally, we both retired on the same day virtually in April of this year. So we're now both ex-Astoners. Today, Anthony and I are talking about map action, and I know we talk to other people about map action, but Anthony is actually a hands-on guy. He's one of those people who flies out to the Philippines when there's a tsunami, who's been to earthquake zones, he's been... He's probably been to the edge of war zones, he's been to some pretty grim places, and he is the epitome of a first response volunteer. And I thought it would be great to just chat with Ant about what it's like getting that call at some ungodly hour in the morning, jumping on a plane and flying out to some place and having to set up a whole mapping operation, um, maybe without all of the normal facilities that we're used to. So without further ado, Ant, welcome to the GMOB podcast. Uh, thanks very much, Stephen. It's um, it's great fun to be to be here and to be chatting to you. Thank you. So, before we get into talking about map action, which is the main thing, just tell us a little bit about your journey in geo and what you've been doing before I described us meeting and during the time that you were at Aston. Sure. Um, I, I actually came to geo late in my career and. Um, I always struggle with this, but I don't think I even did geography as a as a an O level as it was in those days, let alone any anything further. So um, the story was that um, I was working for a company until um, about 2007, having worked largely around structured publishing and publishing systems, and particularly things like SGML, if you remember that um, XML, you know those kind of markup languages. Um, Anyway, for various reasons, cut long story short, the, the company went under and we were all summarily made redundant. So it left us all, um, some of us, uh, you know, at various stages of our careers were wondering what was going to happen next. And um, interestingly, as I think not infrequently happens in these situations, people, all my colleagues pretty much went off and did interesting things and in many cases more interesting things than they were doing before. And I was no exception to that. Um, so I... I kind of looked around and thought, well, okay, I probably, you know, maybe I've got another 10, 15 years still of my career. I want to do something that I've kind of always had a bit of a, a secret interest in, but but never looked into. So I went off and did a um, GIS master's at, at Cranfield University over a couple of years, um, picked up a, a, a kind of entry-level job with a local firm, and literally I looked around and 
knocked on doors and found somebody who wanted a bit of GIS doing. Um, and um, after a few years there, moved on to, to Aston, where I spent um, nine um, nine um, pretty happy years, actually. So, yeah, as you say, we finished uh, finished a month or so ago. Um, and um, I worked on Aston's core product. Um, I shared a lot of integration works and consultancy, quite a lot of training, particularly around um, QGIS, but also PostGIS. Um, so I, I felt I'm really lucky, really, to have been able to pick up a really a completely new strand of my career at that stage and to, you know, to find somewhere like both Sustain, where I worked for a few years, and Aston, um, to work where I was given a lot of experience um, uh, and work with fantastic colleagues. So um, uh, the, one thing that strikes me about this, and I'm sure other people find this too, is that despite going into a completely new field, half the time I'm just using skills that I found I already had, some, some of which I didn't know about. Um, and you say, oh, yeah, this comes up. I understand this thing. Lots of things I don't understand, but there's plenty that comes up. You say, yeah, I can do this kind of thing because it's just the same kind of thing as I was doing 10 years ago, but just in a different context and with a different name on it. So that's actually very like me, Ant, because um, for the first 20 plus years of my career, I was working in building materials. You, you, know, you couldn't get further away from GIS than that. And then through chance circumstances, I having been made redundant like you yeah. and looking around for the next thing. And somebody said, come and help in a GIS business. So I went to help on the commercial side in a GIS business. And the next 20 years um, has been a career in GIS. Also somebody who never studied ge geography at GCSE level or any other level. And Kenfield would say that it shows because <laughs> I know nothing about geography, but it's, it is a play, you're right, it is a journey that lots, that both of us have made and I'm sure many other people have made and you find yourself in this community and the skills that you brought with you from your previous life are very, uh, very transferable. Yeah. But and, you also... Yeah, I, I was going to say, Stephen, I mean, it, I, I'm sure you feel the same. It's just been, a, it's an absolutely fascinating community. There are so many aspects to it, it works in so many different domains you know, it's a cliche, but, you know, GIS is everywhere, geography is everywhere. So, you know, that's one of the things that's so stimulating about it, I think. Yeah. And throughout the time that you worked at Aston, you've also been, and I think presumably before that, you've been a volunteer at Map Action. Yeah, that's right. So a, a little before, actually. I mean, one of the, the things that happened on my, um, my Cranfield um, master's course was that it was a modular course. So one of the modules was actually an emergency humanitarian response module. That was part of the group work. So we had, we did, you know, what's called a kind of desktop exercise. So we didn't actually physically um, go anywhere, but we went through a simulation for a desktop exercise run by somebody from Map Action. who was a, a, a Map Action volunteer at the time, and um, you know they said, okay, here's the scenario, and this is. You have to form a team. You have to give each other roles. You have to respond to these things that are happening. What maps do you need to produce? What data do you need? How are you going to present your data? And uh, that was, I found that absolutely fascinating and, and great fun. And, you know, working along, alongside my colleagues, who some of which I knew and some of which I didn't, didn't know very well, fellow students. And um, after, uh, you know, after I 
got myself established in GIS, I thought, yeah, that's something that I'd really like to get back to. So I kind of followed up with um, with this guy, Philip Moore was his name, and uh, and pestered him for a bit and eventually found out that there's a recruitment process I needed to go through. So I went through that and thankfully um, got, got accepted. So that was... Um, I think 2011 that I wow. started working with Map Action. Actually, not as a at that time they had these two categories of volunteer. One was deployable, i.e., people that actually go out on the emergency missions, and the second was um, uh, operational support volunteer. I think they called it. Um, and the idea was that then you did kind of back office work, perhaps preparing training materials, um, perhaps going on kind of non-critical, non-emergency missions, perhaps doing software development. Um, that categorization actually, that division actually went after a while. Um, but I did move on within a couple of years to become part of the deployable team, as did most of, if not all of my contemporaries. So, um, so it was a kind of quite gentle introduction, actually, to the, to the world of um, humanitarian mapping. So before we get into the war stories, or the deployment stories, um, for the benefit of anyone who doesn't... Um, have a great deal of knowledge about map map action. Maybe just describe who map action is, how it came about, and what it does. Sure. Well, it's a it's a UK based um, uh, NGO. It's been around for twenty plus years. It actually, started. I was looking it up. Um, it started uh, in the in the nineties uh, under a different name. It was called Aid for Aid originally because they. The ethos was the idea was to provide support to other humanitarian organisations. Um, so Aid for Aid kind of described it, but I think in I think it was two thousand and three, um, two thousand four, they they wanted to get mapping into the name, so they changed the name to to Map Action. And actually, the first emergency deployment I believe was two thousand and three to Lesotho, um, but the big one was the um, which was which really I think the um, the, the kind of launch pad for map action as it is, you know, as it's been since then, it was the Boxing Day tsunami in um, 2004 um, in, in Sri Lanka and other places. And that was really a major, um, you know, a, a major trigger and a, a realisation that map action as an organisation which was able to respond in very short, at very short notice with appropriate people, appropriate kit, uh, appropriate technology, appropriate skills, and provide information um, management, mapping, logistics support, information logistics support to largely to other humanitarian organisations was going to add huge value um, to humanitarian response, particularly at that time, emergency humanitarian response. So, um, I mean, I think one thing, and I think one thing to, to useful to be aware of is that it really came from people who are coming out of the military. And I think that's been one of its strengths from the very beginning is that it was driven by uh, people who understood logistics, who understood rapid deployment and, you know, the need for standard operating procedures and and people who could just get things done very quickly. So it's a, a mixture of a very high degree of organisation, but also a high degree of flexibility and resilience and kind of, you know, being able to think on your feet, um, so I, I'm particularly that perhaps that that influence has reduced somewhat. But um, certainly, when I started with the organisation, there were a number of people in key positions amongst the staff 
who had those skills. And um, as somebody who's not really worked with the military very much, it's certainly led me to appreciate how important those skills are just to just to be able to make things happen. There's no point in having all these people ready if you can't get them there. And if they turn up and they find the laptop's not got a charger, um, you know, forget it. You're wasting everybody's time. So that, that was fascinating. And there are a lot of geographies in in the UK military. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that they've, you know, I mean, mapping has always been, uh, you know, a very important part of um, any any kind of military operation. And um, there are there are classic maps which are kind of regularly wheeled out to illustrate that. But certainly, modern, you know, modern day, there's there's GIS units um, all over the place, and we, you know, we've worked with them on a number of occasions, and they're you know they're they're always sound people to to work with and uh, you know you always learn learn something from them so to give a bit of scale to map action how many how big is it sure um well it's about i think there's something like 20 25 staff um so you know staff provide management administration marketing fundraising all those sort of things not all not all full full time um but there's a solid core of staff um a couple of uh, you know, pretty much full-time GIS people um, who are there to um, well, do all the GIS things, and, but particularly, I think, to set standards and make sure we're, we're all using the right software, we had the right add-ons and templates and so on. Um, so, you know, th- those are the, the staff are the, are the permanent fixtures who, um, obviously, they, there's some change, but they, they make sure everything runs okay. And then on top of that, there's... 70 80 volunteers it's a it's a bit of a moving target because again people come and go but there's a a, a big pool of volunteers um some of whom have been there longer than me uh, you know some of whom date back pretty much to the to the beginning actually there are still people around who who were in right at the start and some are new we were on a, a training weekend last weekend up in up in scotland where we had eight or or so volunteers who joined in the last six months and so um, you know, we do need to complete, you know, regularly refresh the volunteer pool because people move on, um, people's life circumstances change, they find they, they don't have the time. Um, so, um, and that's that's always, you know, that in itself is refreshing. I mean, I I really enjoyed it. We can working with people I really essentially didn't know, and you're, you're sat down with them working on a, an exercise over two or three days, and um, it's always stimulating, and you always come come away learning stuff. So, yeah, it's a it's a uh, it's a it's a good it's a good solid pool. Like any volunteer pool, um, there are people you know people give different time things at different stages in their lives and careers, and um, I'm I'm in a happy position now where I've got a reasonable amount of of time. So. I'm, I'm probably in a, a phase where I'm upping the time I'm spending it at, right. at the moment. Other people are, are in a different phase. But, um, but yeah, it's that, that kind of scale of operation. All Brits? No, not at all. Um, we've got, um, I mean, mostly UK-based, I would guess. Right. Um, but even amongst that UK-based um, population of volunteers, there's a, uh, a, a solid um, number of, of people from... Uh, originate from other countries. Uh, we've got a Caribbean section with four or five people because we've got particularly lo- close links to uh, the Caribbean, and they're all Caribbean-based. Pe- and I'm happy to say four of those, uh, four of them were, were 
around at the weekend. It was great to see them. Uh, we got a few people um, dotted around European countries and one or two further afield. Somebody's in Manila at the moment. And what quite often happens is people start off in the UK and then perhaps they move somewhere else. Um, but particularly these days with the comms, say to comms, absolutely no reason why they can't continue making contribution from wherever they are. So, so um, yeah, all over really. So it takes quite a lot of money to sustain map action, you know, 20-odd full-time staff, a lot of specialist equipment and everything else, and then you have to fly the volunteers out to the various locations. Where's the funding come from? Well, that's a good question, and that's a question that our fundraising team are constantly constantly asking themselves and ask, being, being asked. Um, and the answer is it, it, it changes. I mean, it's, it's I guess, um, a good chunk of it comes from governments in one form or another. So, you know, we will be part of government's aid budgets. Historically, uh, we used to get a lot from DFID, which is now part of the Foreign Commonwealth Office. Um, not so much now. I'm not sure if there's anything at the moment, but um, um, but we we saw the need even at that time to diversify. So um, at the moment, we're getting um, funding from um, Germany. We've had funding from the Netherlands in the past. We've we've had funding from uh, USAID. Um, we get the interesting. I mean, there's another few other interesting sources of funding. I mean, we get private donors who are uh, who are you know looking to to fund organisations like ours. Uh, we're getting some funding at the moment from something called the Insurance um, Development Foundation, which is, you know, as the name suggests, from the insurance industry, which is interesting. Not so much about emergency deployment, but it's about supporting the side of humanitarian work, which is about uh, managing risk and um, disaster risk reduction, hazard hazard uh, identification and reduction. So, um, you know, that's all about helping the insurance industry to sort of invest in the future and try and try and reduce risk, try and manage their risk. So there's a big range of funding and a, a certain amount of personal fundraising as well, which is always helpful. People run marathons and do bike rides and do have fundraising efforts. So... Um, so yeah, it's 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 varied and, and changing. And you're right, it is it is a lot of money. Um, I think uh, you know we are part of the kind of aid industry, for want of a better term. So we work alongside, you know, in a formal way, not just we turn up and there they are, but we work alongside and as partners with a number of global and regional organisations. So you know we we have for a long time been a recognised partner of these people. Um, and so we often go out alongside a UN team, um, particularly you know where there's a um, some a large scale disaster. Um, we work alongside UNDAC, which is UN Disaster Assessment and Coordination, um, as you know as their mapping cell, as their GIS and information management cell. So um, you know, other other organisations work with them in different roles. So um, so we're we're you know, we have a high profile in within that field. So I don't, I'm not saying that makes it easy to get funding, but it means that it, it is recognised that, you know, if we don't get funding, who's going to turn up and do that stuff? And actually, we're we're pretty good value on the whole because most of what we deliver is uh, based on voluntary effort. So um, they're not paying staff time for lots of that. 
which also prompts me to give a shout out to the team at Aston and all the other companies where the volunteers work because the volunteers are, are virtually all in full-time employment and they have to get permission from their bosses or managers to actually deploy on these kind of missions at very short notice and it can be extremely disruptive. And I, I remember from our time at Aston that the team there were incredibly supportive of stepping in to fill the gaps when you would disappear one weekend to a deployment and next week's work still had to be done in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one thing to say I'm going on holiday for a couple of weeks in, in September and being able to plan around that and hand stuff over. It's quite another saying I'm not coming in for Monday and I'm not going to be in the next Monday. And the Monday after that, I probably won't be up to much anyway. So um, absolutely. And, and this applies, certainly applied to Aston where people were left to pick up the pieces of whatever I was doing or trying to do at the time, but lots of other companies as well. And, and um, you know, I think that's, that's um, you know, a bit of a, a sort of unsung, um, unsung and unappreciated support in this whole, in this whole mechanism. Um, because there's, there's companies, as you say, across the board, public, private sector, academic, um, that, that are effectively kind of, um, it, without their support, this stuff couldn't happen. No, and it's a fantastic endeavor. So, Come on, let's get to it. You know, I mean, there's people listening here and they want to hear what it's like when the phone rings. So, so we get, I mean, we have a process where, uh, you know, we get a text message which is, goes to everybody. This is happening. Are you available? And, and often there's an initial one which says, this might be happening or is this is happening. We don't know yet whether we're going to be asked to go, but heads up, something's going on here. Like there might be a, a you know, a Cyclone paths are predictable to an extent. Um, so often you know a few days in advance. Earthquakes, obviously less so, but uh, certain certain events you can predict. So we'll say, okay, this is happening. You think, fine, if I needed to go, could I go? Could I not go? Maybe get your mind going on that. And then we'll get a, a call for volunteers and then you, you're into a spreadsheet and having to say, yes, I'm available. No, I'm not available. Talk to your boss. Um, persuade them if you need to um, and then from that pool of volunteers who said yes I'm up for it they will select a team that they think is appropriate with you know the right experience the right skills uh, as, as far as possible to the extent that selection can be made uh, for that emergency so then you could be off you know you could be off on a plane within 24 hours you know you turn up at Heathrow somebody gives you the kit off you go so you're expected to be ready at any point for example having your jabs up to date and having your kit you know packed or at least you know where your kit is to be able to go in practice sometimes take it a little bit longer because you need to get visas or there's not infrequently political issues in you know getting into the country or getting the right permissions but that's the process and then you're off and you know sitting next to somebody on the plane and thinking about um probably with not much preparation what it is you're going to be doing where you're going to go where you're going to stay when you get there um i mean we don't just turn up as I, as I said it's always in partnership with somebody else so we're not going to say here we are we've come to help uh we're going to turn up under the umbrella of a un organization or regional humanitarian organization um but yeah so they provide the accommodation or they will assist with things like yeah 
accommodation. You may be, if it's a tent city, they'll have allocated space in a tent. It, it, exactly, exactly. So um, most of the time it's not not tent to be um, you know for, in the, to be perfectly honest but um it's so it's quite often you know hotel whatever's available um i mean my first deployment actually was was um uh haiyan in the um hurricane haiyan in um in the philippines in 2013 and that was that was a, a tent city in a sort of half destroyed sports stadium um, so there's an organization, there's a Swiss organization called IHP who come in and do the logistics of putting up tents. And yeah, there you are, there's your tent, there's your bed. Um, uh, might or may not, not be a shower, you're eating military military rations where you have to pour boiling water into, into a bag and see what you get at the end of it. So that was quite an interesting first, first experience. Um, and working in a tent as well you know that the, there were no you know where we were which is Tacloban in the Philippines there was pretty much nothing left standing it was a scene of utter devastation so um but you need electricity yeah generators you had generators um so you know the logistics operation is amazing if you've not experienced that you know people have been in a few days before with well first of all clear the runway um, in Tacloban, so you could get in, then come in with generators, come in. Um, Telecom Sans Frontier came in, put up satellite dishes, you got internet. Um, somebody else comes in with with um, you know other parts of the, the logistics operation. So um, you know we're not going to turn up until we can actually do anything, because otherwise we're just getting in the way and we're draining resources and we're unhelpful. So you know, so there's a whole web of organizations a bit like map action but each with a specialism in absolutely. building absolutely. the tent yeah. city yeah. sorting the power out sorting yeah. the comms out exactly and a lot of these are, are ngos you know people assume that it's the un and the un goes in and, and does all the stuff but actually you know it's almost like subcontractors um and and the reason that works is that that's what we do you know we built up the expertise to do that it's telecom frontier understand about getting comms working in difficult situations. Um, other people work out how, you know, the IHP have these units that they come in, everything is already there. They open it up, bang, you've got a tent, bang, you've got, you know, toilets, showers, whatever's whatever's needed. So um, there are these specialist organisations and they all, you know, fit together. Um, and it, as long as everybody gets there at the, the, the right time, within a few days you've got a whole functioning response unit which means that then other people come can come in and do the important work which is okay going out finding out what's happened on the ground how many people are affected where they are uh what are the immediate resource needs um so that's the the next phase really um and and how much money is needed how big is the response you know do we need a major international appeal or can it be something that's dealt with by local organizations um, you know, what's the just just this initial assessment of what's going on? So when you get sent out to one of these disasters, um, what kind of mapping are you doing? What I mean? So um, I mean, there's a whole there's a whole range, as you might imagine. Um, often the most important stuff is simply reference mapping. It's it's you know providing some basic maps because maps aren't always available 
um, you know, if we're living in the UK and lots of other countries, we take it for granted you can go to go and buy a map or get online and get you know highly detailed mapping anywhere you live. That's not always the case. So um, we're going to be producing reference mapping. One of the most the maps I think which I got the most appreciation for was in Haiti after um, Hurricane Matthew, I think it was, uh, which was a which I provide to to the uh, to the captain of a, a, a ship in the Dutch Navy who'd come to, for the response, which just showed them the you know the basic you know the um, topography of, of of the area, and um, because they have they have plenty of charts, but what they don't have is much of it is land maps. So every time I saw him, he got this little A4 folded map out of his pocket and you know thank me again for providing him with this map so often it's the the basic stuff i mean it's 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 okay what's the, the sort of baseline where where is everything and then on top of that you get the situational what we call the situational stuff so okay what happened what was the path of the hurricane um and what with what force um where is the flooding if there is any um where have things been destroyed and where are the um you know where are the ports where are the where are the un um, organizations the response organizations located so um that's all about because people come into the country in response and they just need that orientation stuff and demographics um, presumably as well yeah, simple demographics exactly how many people per province per district per commune whatever the admin division is so Maps are a fantastic way of just giving people that initial orientation, which tells them, um, you know, they, they probably haven't been to the country before. They might have done, but they probably don't know the country at all. Certainly, that's the case for most of the places I've been. Um, you know, what does the country look like, and where's what do we know so far? And that's a it's a fast changing um, picture. So these maps often the first ones you get out. They're inaccurate. You know they're inaccurate, but they're the best information that you have. And, and in fact, getting them out as inaccurate is a pretty good way of improving the accuracy because people will then come back and say, well, no, you've got this. You know, you've shown the coordination centre here. Actually, it's there. Or this port is closed, so you know, take that off the map. And over the course of a couple of weeks, you'll build up a, a much better picture. And maybe paper. Yeah, I mean, mainly, there's there's always a demand for paper. You know, we'll have a central coordination centre. People come in and we'll have a stack of maps. People like to go up with a bit of paper. Sure, they're online. I mean, pretty much everything is is published on our um, data repository, which is um, online. I mean, they're published as as static maps. They're published as PDF, and we've got some means of publishing online maps as well. But on the whole, people are pretty happy with. Um, um, you know, with static maps and, and paper is, is always in demand. So, yeah, we take printers and plenty of ink and paper and uh, hopefully the printer just carries on churning stuff. Um, <laughs> sometimes it survives to the end of the mission and sometimes it does <laughs> printers yeah. being printers. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're often the weak link. So yeah. how long are you out there for? You said two weeks, I think. Is that a yeah, typical I mean, the, deployment? Or? That, that's typical, yes. I mean quite often i mean for the pra practical reason really that it's it's hard for you know it's hard enough to say i'm going to be off work for two weeks to say i'm going to be off work and i'm not quite sure when i'm coming back is is not really gonna gonna cut it so 
Uh, and it's and it's you know it's hard work. It's hard physically. It can be hard emotionally as well. So we find that two weeks is enough. Um, if we still need, if we're still active, if we still need response, if there's if there's a lot going on after two weeks, we'll send a rotation. So people will come out. Hopefully, we've got an overlap. You hand over to the next team. Um, and because you know we have training, and I think this is one of the things we need to stress. It's not just a pool of people and we turn up on deployments. We have um, 10, 11 training uh, events every year, uh, which we're expected to turn up to a, a good number of. So um, you know, people turn up and they, we know what the procedures are. We know the software. Um, we know how things work. And so generally handovers are, are pretty smooth. And, um, and we can just pick up where, you know, I can pick up where the last person left off. And off we go. So go on, tell me, Esri, QGIS or something else? Huh. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good, very good question, <laughs> Stephen. I mean, Esri have been one of our big supporters right from the beginning. So, you know, we get software from them. Um, we get some other support from them. So that's great. I mean, so our, our default, um, uh, our default uh, software of choice for emergency missions has always been um, ARC products, Esri products. Uh, and that's still the case. Um, and the, there's, you know, we, a decision has to be taken. There's no point in sending people out where, you know, you've got trying to do things in parallel software. So I appreciate it. I mean, it probably wouldn't be, won't surprise you to hear, it probably wouldn't be my choice, but I, you know, I, I, my history, my experience has largely been with, with uh, QGIS. So that's not surprising. Um, and a lot of, a lot of our volunteers come from organizations um, who where where Arc is the mandated software, so it makes perfect sense for people to use the software that they're 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 used to. Um, so we've recently migrated to to Arc Pro. So um, people like me who are, who are not sort of habitual Arc users have had to go through another learning curve, but <laughs> um, I think I'm getting there. Um, but I th I th the other thing I think is important to say is that Map Actions workers diversified enormously over the time that I've been there. So we now do a lot of work, which is about, uh, I mean, there are various buzzwords, training, capacity building, anticipatory action, um, you know, risk and hazard analysis, uh, all these sort of things. And anything we do, pretty much anything we do outside of our um, uh, our emergency response work, where it's not basically just us going out with our with our laptops and ARC, uh, uses QGIS, um, certainly for training. Uh, we do a lot of training, and QGIS is our... And that's training people training. in countries with potential risk in the future, yeah, to give uh, them uh, their own capacity. Uh, to... Absolutely, yeah, because there's a growing, you know, there's growing capacity all around the world in countries where, you know, you know there's, there's risk, you know there are are going to be disasters of, of one kind or another. And that could be anything from, you know, so-called natural disasters, um, although there's a, you know, a discussion to be had around that term, but anything from, from that to, you know, conflict and um, um, disease, drought, whatever. So, um, so yes, um, natural, um, uh, local capacity is, is something that's, there's growing regional organizations are very important in that. So there are, regional organizations like uh, it's called Sedema in the Caribbean. There's the um, Asian countries have the AHA Center in Jakarta and 
um, a regional response organization there. There's a Central Asia uh, organization called CSDRR that we've been working with extensively in places like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. Um, and um, yeah, QGIS is our, is our tool of choice and, and their choice. So it's been fascinating. Um, you know, going to places like Kazakhstan, teaching QGIS in Russian. Well, not teaching QGIS in Russian, but <laughs> with the aid of translators, um, uh, interpreters, uh, working uh, and working with people using the Russian interface of QGIS, but um, having to sort of trying to navigate my way around the, the QGIS menus in, in Russian is, is quite fun. Are the icons um, still in the same place? The icons are still in the, pla the same place, but the script is different and the yeah. language is way beyond my, yeah. my comprehension. And the words are a lot longer, I think. The words are longer, yeah. I mean, luckily, we, we have, do have one or two Russian speakers who, who uh, right. we can sometimes get along on these missions. But, yeah, interestingly, once you get stuck in and if you've got good um, interpreters, which we always do within about half an hour, you sort of forget that you're... Just need to leave a bit of a time for you know things to come backwards and forwards, but you forget that it's a different language. So so yes, QGIS really important part of what we do, and um, and I think um, you know there's a growing appreciation that that actually you know if we needed to and if we wanted to, th there's no reason certainly in my view why we couldn't use it on emergency missions as well. But um, you know we need to we need to use the tool which works best for everyone. So I'm not you know we just need to be pragmatic about that. And also, I'm guessing a lot of OpenStreetMap. A lot of OpenStreetMap, absolutely invaluable. I mean, it's changed what we do, you know, and, and made things easier beyond beyond all recognition, really. I mean, particularly, I mean, I guess the the Haiti the Haiti earthquake, the big one was was the um, was I think it was it 2010 before I, I joined Map Action, but that was a, a massive, uh, you know, gave everybody. You know, a, a massive spur to, to, to realize what could be done with OpenStreetMap and how quickly mapping could be um, could be produced. And um, you know, we work with the humanitarian OpenStreetMap team, HOT, um, who are doing fantastic work in lots of locations, who are able to mobilize a huge number of, of people, and who are you know able to, to you know focus on areas where where humanitarian mapping is. Is needed. So, yeah, uh, one of the first things we'll do when we go anywhere, and in fact, before we go anywhere, is to make sure we've got the latest um, OSM mapping. And they've switched a lot because at, ha at the time of Haiti, it was like an a sort of it was an emergency response activity to try yeah. and map the place as the consequences of the earthquake were unfolding. Yeah. But now, hot have switched. Yeah. Their focus is much more on trying to map the area in the same way as you're creating capacity. They're trying to identify the places that are under mapped and get them mapped to a reasonable level before there's a crisis. Not absolutely, absolutely, and and you know, w without wishing to to you know underestimate the efforts of people that are mapping during an emergency. It, that's really too late in in many ways. You, you because when we go in, we need the mapping to be already there. And okay, if it develops during the emergency, that's great. But essentially, we want to turn up with a, a, as accurate as possible mapping. So you know, most of the places I've been, all of the places I've been, I'm sure, um, OpenStreetMap mapping has been invaluable, and, and you know, not just for the you know the 
general reference mapping, but you know, pulling out things like water points and um, you know, down to individual buildings. You know, we've used buildings as proxy for population and so on. So, um, yeah, in all kinds of ways, the, the detail is is incredible and incredibly useful. Um, so, come on, you haven't given me any. Re- you gave me a little bit of a teaser with your first deployment. What's been the most exciting or the most scary deployment that you've had, Ant? Um, yeah, I mean, they are very varied. I, I mean, that, that high am one was pretty, particularly as that was the first one, that was pretty high octane, really, because, um, you know, it was my first one. It was, say, in the middle of an area which had been flattened. I mean, I hadn't seen anything like that in ever in my life. I mean, that was, you know, it, it, it was a like driving through a sort of post-apocalypse apocalyptic landscape when we went there um so um i wouldn't you know I, it's hard to think of things which are truly scary uh, i mean i think people no water th- we had we had water we took a lot of water no war zone a uh, war zone no no war zones i mean i've been in one or two places where um i mean for example i think i was in mali where uh after the you remember the charlie hebdo yeah um shootings in 2015 or so i think and i was driving around um bamako which is the capital of mali and there were demonstrations going on and i was you know driving around in a four by four and thinking i'm quite glad not in a four by four and i hope this four by four is able to keep going and take us to our back to our hotel because i don't really want to be kind of wandering around in the middle of this demonstration um but i can't say i felt particularly threatened um it was just a sort of an understanding that you know I was probably in the in the right place in the circumstances where normally you know security is 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 normally a a, a big concern for map action and there's always uh, a risk assessment. We're always under the aegis of of the local sort of security umbrella, so the UN or or similar organisation will will look after us. So um, um, I guess the other example might be in um, the um, um, Ebola epidemic in, in Sierra Leone in 2013, I think, where again, I think probably scarier for other people and for my family than than I found it. Um, I was pretty comfortable that, you know, given given the right circumstances and as long as nothing anything kind of crazy happened, Ebola is actually relatively difficult. I mean, it's pretty clear how how you catch Ebola and the circumstances under which you catch Ebola aren't weren't circumstances which I would find myself. But there was a sort of heightened level of of awareness and trepidation, I think. But I mean I think the the, the thing the thing that sort of is always reassuring to me was that I've always been with colleagues that I trusted. You know, there's you're you're kind of working in situations people again a bit like the military, you know. You're working alongside people and you're you're looking out for each other and you've got procedures, you've got you've got people backing you up, you've got um, insurance, you know, the, there's a whole safety net around you. So um, I think that the scarier things have been the things that, you know, you've probably experienced too, where um, it was, I think it was in Indonesia in the, um, the earthquake and tsunami in, in um, uh, 2000 and, 18, I think, where we responded and I was in um, Sulawesi with some colleagues and the Secretary General of the UN turned up 
So we were all called into the meeting with the Secretary, Secretary General of the UN, and the the humanitarian coordinator. You know, I was busy making a map. I was hauled off into this meeting and sat down in a you know in a rather rather smart smart meeting room. The Secretary, the, the humanitarian coordinator, gave an introduction and then turned to me and said, "Well." Maybe the representative of Map, from Map Action would like to oh. give, their, give their opinion on the on this situation, which I was totally unprepared for, and I thought I was just sort of meeting the room, you know. So um, that was extremely scary, and I burbled out some nonsense, and you know, immediately wished I could dis- disappear in a hole in the floor. No. Um, so it's those kind of things. You know? Okay, um, so I get it. And having to um, brief the Secretary General of the United Nations is a hell of a lot more scary than being deployed into uh, yeah. a place that's been flattened. It's already been flattened, so there's not exactly. much to worry exactly. about. I mean, what, what what was scary, sort of, you know, vicariously and, and in, a, in a real sense, was going to, I mean, and that's probably the other experience I've had, apart from Tacloban in 2013, where you just see the extent of the devastation. And in this earthquake, one of the things that happened was liquefaction, which is where essentially the ground just turns into mush. And so because of the, as a result of the earthquake, um, the the ground becomes extremely unstable. So it's, it's not a direct, you know, it's not like the, the earth shakes and the buildings fall down. The, the earth shakes, the soil becomes extremely unstable and everything just gets swallowed up. And seeing seeing areas like that, or rather seeing where there used to be villages and roads, and then there was, and there's nothing, is you know is is a really, um, you know, it really hits home. I think, um, and to to realise that you know the precariousness of of lives in some parts of of the world, and the sort of challenges that people have to have to face, and it really sort of brings home to you really what. You know what we're what we're responding to, and and why it's important that that we that we try and do our bit. Indeed, and if other people listening to this want to get involved, how do they go about finding out more about volunteering for Map Action? So there's a there's an annual recruitment process. So if you look on the Map Action website, you'll find details of that. I think it probably kicks off in the autumn i may be wrong about that but uh um but yeah there's there's normally an annual recruitment process um occasionally we we miss a year if we don't feel we've we need to, to top up the volunteer pool but most years it happens uh this year i think we took on about 10 or 12 people um but actually before you do that my recommendation would be to try and get hold of an existing volunteer or staff member and just have a chat to find out if it's going to if it's going to work for you and, and vice versa. So, you know, I'm always happy to talk to people. Um, I'm sure if you look around, you know, if you do bigger Googling, you probably find somebody maybe in your organisation or in another organisation or indeed contact Map Action and they could probably put put you in touch with somebody. So, yeah, have a chat. It's, um, um, you know, it does, it does require a, a combination of, you know, A, the, the willingness and the skills to do it, but also the, the practical ability to, to be able to put in the time, you know, it's nice having volunteers who've got great skills and so on, but 
if they're not able to put in the time for whatever reasons, um, then maybe it's not the right time for them. So, you know, maybe wait until you've got a bit of bit of flexibility, um, and you can turn up to you know not just the the the, the uh, deployments, but also you are expected to turn up to half a dozen or so training every year. That means going off in the middle of February to some cold field and camping and um, spending a weekend in, in you know, dismal conditions, making maps along with a bunch of other people. That's not to say it's a miserable experience, but you know, it's, it's, not, it's not for everybody. It's usually great fun. And it's a, there's, a, you know, there's a strong social aspect to it as well. It's, I've, I've made a lot of really good friends in, in map action who I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have done if I had not been involved. So that's something I'm incredibly, uh, incredibly grateful for, really. Fantastic. And I think everyone who's a Map Action supporter, and I know I have been and continue to support Map Action, um, needs to be grateful to all of the volunteers like you, Anne, because there's nothing without the volunteers. You know, I mean, it would be impossible to build this organization staffed with full time people. I think that's right. I think what's amazing about the volunteer pool is there's such a range of skills and experience. So not everybody goes out doing the sort of gung-ho stuff um, there are some people who simply do really important useful stuff behind the scenes which supports everybody else around data or around procedures or documentation or um, you know developing relationships um, and, um, and and everybody you know there's a niche for lots of different lots of people I mean ideally most people are, are able to go out and do deployments. Some some people don't even do maps. Some people's some people's strengths are in logistics and and admin and um, you know working out how to um, how to get to five volunteers from A to B through four different airports in in you know in the space of twenty four hours. And uh, and there's a space important place for them too. Great. Okay, and it's been fantastic. Um, I've always been in awe of what you do, um, but uh, hearing some of the detail, it is fantastic. And uh, my respect. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Stephen. It's been it's been great fun, and uh, yeah, I appreciate the chance to to bang on about map action. I'm always happy to do that. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Right. Okay. Bye. Thanks for joining us today and listening to the GeoMob podcast. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Please get in touch with us if you have any feedback or suggestions for topics we should cover. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our monthly mailing list where we keep you informed about upcoming events. You can, of course, also follow us on Twitter where our handle is GeoMob. Thanks for listening and hope to see you at a GeoMob event soon.